Merry Christmas. Um, let's say the, the Christmas holiday is a comfort holiday, if you will. Um, you've heard of comfort foods, those foods that we eat that take us back to a, a place in time, a nostalgia even, something when we're out of sorts, we can, we can go to these comfort foods and they bring us right back home. Well, Christmas, is, to me, is something of a comfort holiday. It is nothing if not nostalgic. And we have our rituals and our customs that bring us back to a different time, and a different place, a place that is familiar and grounded. And no matter um, where you are or what's going on, there's always this hope, isn't there, that we will be home for Christmas, whether it's spiritually or physically or emotionally, that we be grounded, right? One of um, my Christmas comforts growing up was that my mom would always make cinnamon rolls for us to eat on Christmas morning. And um, as mothers are wont to do, they continue to do things for their sons long after they've moved out of their house and started a family of their own. And so my mom still makes me cinnamon rolls every year and sends them to our house for us to eat on Christmas morning. Um, This year, we had Christmas with them on the 23rd, and we were supposed to pick up the cinnamon rolls then, and we forgot. Yes, I know, I hear the gasp and the sighs in the audience. We did not have Christmas rolls, uh, cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning, um, and that, that comfort was, was lost, but nevertheless, Christmas went on, and we had a grand old time, but, but you get that, you know what I'm saying, and, and often, and, and sometimes to our detriment, much of our Christmas nostalgia um, starts to include the words of our gospel writers, Okay, we hear them once a year at Christmas time, and they, so, they become so very easily wrapped up into the nostalgia of Christmas that we forget their radical, revolutionary message. And so we hear in Luke's gospel, for instance, these very famous words, um, further infamized by Linus in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in what kind of clothes? Swaddling clothes. And laid him where? In a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And then we have John's take. That exact same moment in history, John writes this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we take these words and we wrap them up into our Christmas nostalgia and we forget that these are transforming. These are powerful words that describe a transformative moment in history and too often we lose that in the comfort of Christmas. What are we to make of this word who became flesh? Are we willing to let it disrupt us? Are we willing to let it challenge us to to enter our lives and to enter our hearts and to change something about who we are? And where we are headed. Who is this word that became flesh? Well, there are a few things that we notice in John's gospel. Um, The first thing is this. The word of God is God himself. And so we read in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In these days, in John's day, there was a, a tradition about the word in both Greek and Jewish um, thought. The logos, if you will, in the Greek. And, and the Greeks, um, you know, they had a, a sort of a universal understanding of the word. 
And the word for them was reason, and it was something that was universal, except, uh, accessible to all that can help you to make sense and order of the world. The Greeks understood this, this idea of a word. The Jews understood this word as well. For them, it was associated with wisdom, that there was a, a wisdom in God that man had access to, that we could discern. And so you hear about wisdom literature in Scripture, the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, all of these sayings, that, that's considered wisdom literature. It opens up with, with, with a discussion of wisdom and how we can walk in the way of the wise and not in the way of folly. This was their understanding of the word, the logos. And so when John writes these words and he talks about the word and the logos, you know, the Jews are hearing it, the Greeks are hearing it, they're reading it, and they're thinking, yeah, they're tracking with this. They, they get this. And John explains to us why this word has universal appeal. Why? Because it was there. In the beginning was the word. And not only was this word there, but the word is with God. In the beginning, is he not? And in fact, this word is not only there in the beginning, this word is not only with God, but this word was and is God. And somehow we have this logos, that's the Greek for word, this logos that, that, that is somehow God and, and yet distinct. And this, that's a whole other sermon. We're not going to go there this morning. But we need to remember this. Who is this word of God that disrupts our Christmas nostalgia? It's the word that was there in the beginning. The word that was with God. The word that was God. Second thing, the word of God is the agent of creation. That's kind of a, a theological phrase, but we'll explain it. Let's read verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through the Word of God. This Word of God that was with God and that is God is somehow taking part in the creating. We have God, the Father, who is Creator, and yet He's creating through this Word. Remember in Genesis, another in the beginning story? In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created. And how did He create? Genesis 1, chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. God spoke. He issued a word, if you will. He created through his word. And so we have God, the creator, and the word, the agent of creation, creating the world. You might think about it. This is all analogies are a stretch, but this one might help you. Think about the architect who designs a building and the contractor who builds it. The architect who designs a building and a contractor who builds it. And here you have God the Father creating and the Word making it happen. And God said, let there be light. Third thing, the Word of God illuminates the darkness, verses 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we see a creation that has rejected God. A creation made by God himself, made by the word that has rejected its creator. And so we stand in darkness. And yet we have the word of God shining in, a light in the darkness, illuminating the darkness, showing us who God is, 
who we are and how God redeems us. The word shining in the darkness. So the word of God, this word that that John speaks of that so often becomes entrenched in our Christmas nostalgia, was there in the beginning. In fact, this word was God himself. Is the agent of creation. Through him, John writes, all things were made. It's the light that illuminates the darkness. And when we understand the word like that, when we truly dive into what this means, John's statement on the birth of Christ, his statement on the incarnation is stunning. It is absolutely stunning. The Word of God became flesh. He became a child. He became man and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what this means is the the Creator God is once again dwelling with His people. Literally, if you read the Greek of this text, I don't do a lot of that, but I do it sometimes. When you read this, it literally says the Word of God pitched His tent among us. The Word of God pitched His tent among us. Or another way to say it would be this. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you all remember what the tabernacle was? The tabernacle was the tent that went with the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings after they crossed the Red Sea and entered the the Sinai Peninsula. The tabernacle went with them. It was the dwelling place of God. By day, God went ahead of them in a pillar of smoke. And when they set up camp, God dwelt in the midst of them in the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is was the architecture was was um, fabulous, and there there was gold, and there was um, images of a garden. And it harkens back to a time when God dwelled with His people in Eden, right? And He walked with them in the the cool of the garden, and they enjoyed this relationship, this perfect relationship between God and man that was recreated in the tabernacle. And now the Word of God Himself is tabernacling among us. What a statement. But it's different this time. He's not tabernacling among us in smoke and fire and intimidation and the the earthquake and the the tremendous and and terrible scenes of an awesome and and holy God. No, he's tabernacling among us in the flesh. The word was made flesh when he tabernacled among us. And so the creator, the agent of creation, the word that God spoke actually took on the form of his creation. He entered into it with us. Too often we get this idea that you know, creation is bad and sinful and the spiritual is good and, and holy. And so we need to leave behind the creation and enter into the spiritual realm. And one day when we die, we'll all be souls and we'll be all spiritual. And we can leave all this awful creation stuff behind us. And that's not what God does. God enters into his creation. The word became flesh. What he's saying is this creation is good. Just like he said in Genesis. In fact, it's, it's very good. And I'm here to redeem it. And so the word then is the light. 
God himself entering into his creation so he could illuminate this world to shine his light. But it's not an exterior light that shines down on us. It's an internal light that shines up from within creation. Jesus Christ himself becoming man so that he might shine his light. And where did he shine it the brightest? Well, on Calvary. On that dark Friday when he died, the light of God shined brightest. And then three days later, when he was raised from the dead, God affirming the light of the cross, God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God raising him from the dead. Why? So that we might have new life. The life that enlightens all men through Jesus Christ. What then are we to make of this word made flesh? Are we, are we going to be challenged in the midst of our Christmas nostalgia? Are we going to allow this light to penetrate our hearts? Let's read verses 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God himself. That great, gospel, I mean, that great epistle reading from Galatians this morning where we, we read about our adoption into the family of God. There's parents in this room who have adopted and, and it's, it's, it's bringing somebody not born of you, not born into your family, into your family and loving them unconditionally. Just like you would love any other child in your house. And God offers that to us. That we might become children of God. What an amazing thing. And when we become children of God, two things happen. And then we're going to be done. Two things happen. Um, The first one is this. We're given hope. The incarnation, the word made flesh dwelling among us gives us hope. A hope of entering light out of darkness. The words from O Holy Night have struck me this year um, in, in a way they never have before, and I'm not sure why, but, but, but it says this in that first, that first stanza. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Long lay the world in darkness, in sin and error pining, till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. Till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. The incarnation is a message of hope. Hope in a God who loves his creation. Hope in a God who took on the form of his creation. Who experienced our temptation. Who knows our loves. He's mourned our losses. He has died the death that we deserve. Dorothy Sayers, this was on Kendall Harmon's blog this week. It was a great quote. I stole it. Dorothy Sayers writes this. She's referring to Jesus. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst of horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it was well worthwhile. That the God of heaven, who created us, thought it was worthwhile to take on our flesh so that we might become children of God. 
That's the hope of the incarnation. Secondly, the incarnation is a challenge. It's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to our way of life. It's a challenge to our Christmas nostalgia to receive this child, this babe, lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, this word made flesh, crucified and resurrected. To to receive him, to know him, is to know something completely different, something this world can't offer, to receive a new king, to receive a new kingdom that necessarily changes our very identity, who we are, who we serve, and what we love. T.S. Eliot has a fabulous poem, The Journey of the Magi. I'm sure many of you have read it. And it takes a first-person account of these wise men, these magi, traveling to meet the Christ child. And the first uh, two verses, they they are um, lamenting the journey, a hard time we had of it, the speaker says. They remember their kingdoms and their palaces and their women bringing them um, beverages and and the the warmth. And they recall these things in the midst of a dreary cold and a brutal journey. And they find the child. And this magi, this wise man recounts. All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were very different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. With an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. These magi went and met the Christ. They met the king. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, the word made flesh. And when they went back to their kingdoms, they were not at ease. They were uncomfortable To witness this birth, to see this birth of a king, was for them to experience death. Death to themselves. Death to an old way of life. A foreshadowing of the death of this king that would bring redemption for all who choose to believe in him. So we have a hope and a challenge. A hope in a creator God who gave his life for us and a challenge that we would know something different, something more. That we would be a people who are no longer at ease here, no longer at ease in this old dispensation. And that we might be glad for another death, our death, our death to self, our death that gives us entrance into the world to come. Let us know that death, the death of the incarnated God, and let us rejoice in it and let us be transformed in it through the power of his Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, in this Christmas season, I pray, Lord, that we would gaze upon your incarnation with joy and longing and expectation and hope and know that this is a birth that means death.
death to ourselves, death for you on a cross. But it's not only death, it's new life. The life that brings light to all men. And I pray, Lord, that your light would shine in our hearts, that your light would shine in your people here, this body of Christ called St. Paul's, and that the world in darkness and sin and error pining would know you through us, that they too may die to themselves and receive the new life of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.